The town does not exist except where one black-haired tree slips up like a drowned woman into the hot sky. The town is silent. The night boils with eleven stars. O oh, starry, starry night, this is how I want to die. It moves. They are all alive. Even the moon bulges in its orange irons to push children like a god from its eye. The old unseen serpent swallows up the stars. O oh, starry, starry night, this is how I want to die. Into that rushing beast of the night, sucked up by that great dragon, to split from my life with no flag, no belly, no cry. Is that a classic Aaron poem? Uh, does it sound like an Aaron poem? It doesn't sound like an Aaron poem, to be honest. I would have been greatly like complimented if you'd said that sounded like an Aaron poem. <laughs> no, that's a poem that I found this week. Um, it's a famous one called The Starry Night by Anne Sexton, who was a 20th century American poet. And it is an ekphrasis, meaning it's a piece of writing about a piece of art. Do you want to guess which piece of art? Starry Night? Yeah, Van Gogh's Starry Night. Nice. Um, doesn't have that much relevance towards the episode. I just found it very striking obviously it's a lovely painting found it a lovely poem yeah yeah it's the storytelling semester anything goes <laughs> the only reason i knew it wasn't you is because you don't tend to talk about death in your poems you always yeah. talk about life well i'm very narrow in my themes i think mm. and repetitive indeed in my imagery <laughs> so welcome back to soul scene everyone this is the 13th episode in our storytelling series it is going to talk about Archetypes, which I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, archetypes, stock characters, cliches. I think these are just like the repeating elements of stories through history and across cultures even mm -hmm. that I find really fascinating. And to me, they were really my introduction into any kind of academic thought about stories, be it film or literature or poems or paintings or whatever it is. Just the idea of narrative um, kind of manifesting as like a psychological tool. And I think in the archetypes, in the different characters that keep popping up, uh, that's a really clear example of it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how much like Solacini, as in we're designing an ideal future, um, connections we can make today. Hopefully we can come up with some. Yeah. But before we get into it, we wanted to shamelessly plug our weekly... Love Letter to Existence, as you call it, uh, <laughs> Field Notes, which goes into your inbox. You can sign up in the description. Each week, we kind of observe things and make a little blog post about what's going on or what we think is really nice or maybe what we think is really bad. But we try to keep it positive, I would say. Mm, I'd say. And also, we have, if you are listening, the videos in full of the podcast on YouTube. So if you want to see us struggle not just hear our struggle but see us visibly sweat um go and check that out because i'm sure it's a really enjoyable hour <laughs> wow we are really on the ball with those plugs today yeah but feel free to check them out the field notes i think are going to be really fun the next few weeks so i highly encourage you to tune into those archetypes i originally when i was taught these was taught more than just the Carl Jung archetypes. Mm -hmm. And I was trying desperately to find whatever resource it was the English teacher used, and I couldn't. Yeah. So I was a little bit sad about that. Right. I mean, I was never taught them, so hmm. don't feel too sad. And I think that I'm almost happy about that because then I would have been grounded in one particular like set 
And yeah. I know people people treat the Jungian archetypes as like, well, those are the archetypes. Because even when I did like a cursory Google towards it, it just kept redirecting me towards those. Mm -hmm. And I'm not much of a psychology student, although I find it really fascinating to read about. But I know that Carl Jung is very much a pioneer in this, um, what would you call it, domain, mm -hmm. the domain of psychology and storytelling. But I, I didn't want to lean too heavily into those, I think, 12 that he has. Um, if people want to, then I'm sure hopefully this episode will be a good kind of jumping off point into those more academic and certainly more psychological rather than I think maybe cultural is what we're going to be talking about today, mm -hmm. um, analyses. And yeah, I agree with you. It seems like there are multiple different, I certainly remember not learning in school, but hearing of multiple different like conceptualizations of like, well, really there's 10 characters or like there's five characters, mm -hmm. there's eight different archetypes and there's all these different categorizations. So it's like, spoiler alert, but for the for later in the question, we kind of talked about what are some of our favorite archetypes. Mm -hmm. I just observed and chose some okay. like, from stories. <laughs> Sounds good. So our question specifically was the merits, the pros and cons of archetypes and stories. And my first thing was that they help you avoid repetition and boring stories. Okay. Well, like leaning into them and presenting people oh, they're wearing glasses, odds are they're going to be nerdy. That's more of a trope, but you know what I mean. Right. It's like this person dress, dresses very eclectically. They're probably going to be the magician type or the spirit, like one of the more spiritual types of people. And then it just kind of doesn't make it repetitive because I feel like if we didn't lean into archetypes and what already exists in people's subconscious, mm -hmm. it would be so boring. They're laying out, oh, this person is actually sneaky, creative, fun-loving, well-read. It's just like... So you mean a lot more of the story would have to be devoted to introducing them as characters? Yeah, if we didn't have the capacity in our minds yeah. to make these connections. There's kind of a, a shorthand right now. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, these are the characters, you know them, you've seen them before. Mm -hmm. um, now we can get to the story. Kind yeah, of like that, now we'll saying. tell you what's new. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I like that's a good point of view. I think that, that some stories, of course like a character study or whatever, you wouldn't want it to be someone that you've just seen a thousand times before. Like yeah. some, sometimes it's about exploring interesting, different, either, even either tweaks on um, stock characters or completely original ones or seemingly mm. original ones, but also quite often and especially with genre fair. So something that's like a story and a setting that broadly speaking follows a template, like a mm -hmm. Western, you know, roughly what to expect. And that includes the, the characters that populate the story mm -hmm. because they are archetypes and be mm -hmm. because we are already familiar perhaps with like the john wayne cowboy riding on the horse saving the day hero but also like a lone wolf type um you're right we don't have to be introduced to him every single every single movie yeah you can jump to right why they're right to why they're different and i feel like the reason when we watch movies that we dislike it's maybe they're trying to they're laying it out step by step for us and we're getting bored. Yeah. Oh, did you know he's rugged? He do, doesn't like people? Do you have any any examples? Anything that comes to mind? For me, I find like the the dominant genre fair of the day, which is the superhero movies, they spend way too long trying to flesh out these characters and make them seem more more than what they are. It's mm -hmm. like we know what these guys are. He's the virtuous one, he's kind of the selfish one, she's like the spy. It's like we don't need to you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, we're not here for this in, in some senses. Yeah, exactly. 
My second pro is that it can help orient you in different cultures, different planets, different time periods, because that's the beauty of archetypes is that they transcend culture, time, space. Genre. So genre. It can be set on Mars. It can be set 3,000 years ago. But if they're the the lover boy, you're going to kind of be like, oh, I know him, yeah. even if he's completely unrecognizable in how he dresses, how he talks, whatever it may be. I think of this, it's really funny in the in the Disney 2D movies, like the sniveling sidekick type. Mm-hmm. And the Disney 2D movies spanned a lot of different settings. I mean, mm-hmm. you have something like Treasure Planet and you have like the old fairy tale ones, which are set in this kind of romanticized, uh, I guess, vague Europe. Europe, and You yeah. have like past, present and, and all these different settings. Um, Little Mermaid is like underwater, mm-hmm. but you see these guys recurring. And what's really funny about the Disney movies is that sometimes it's even so evident because they just reuse the animation. It's true. Like for, I think it's The Jungle Book and Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. Um, those animated movies, like you can tell the characters are pretty much the same, but just swapped from the jungle to Robin Hood setting mm-hmm. because they're moving the exact same way and they, like, yeah. they're literally the same kind of stencil <laughs> on the screen. Yeah. I had a note, which is that I think to an extent with these types of characters and also with, I'll just say cliches in general, because I think that's what this question gets at. It's like cliches in character, but cliches mm-hmm. in stories. I think we treat them much the same way today, which is maybe sometimes unfairly cynical. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the all the inundation of like YouTube um, takedowns and cinema sins, you know, the videos that are like mm-hmm. everything wrong with X. Um, I've definitely watched a few of those and they can be funny to an extent, but I feel like when you put too much stock into that type of humor or like if you consider it any kind of genuine criticism, then you're kind of missing the point with storytelling, mm-hmm. which is that just because you've seen something before doesn't make it bad at all. Mm-hmm. And I also think that because of our constant exposure to stories, as we've talked about on the semester, um, there is so much pressure to do things in a new way. Like mm-hmm. I mentioned Disney, um, but I specifically mentioned the 2D films, which are obviously done with, hopefully not, but seemingly they're done with. But I think that the 3D ones, they are trying a lot more to to not just present the cliche characters and even like the cliche villains. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's always a twist villain or maybe there's no villain or something, or like the villain was the protagonist. And um like i say i think it's fine to have complex stories i think it's fine to have character studies i think it's fine to not have every single film even kids films which are kind of more simplistic by nature yeah not be populated with stock characters but also i think some of that familiarity is a is a good thing like it doesn't all have to be gone away with just because people on the internet are looking for something new kind of yeah don't be contrarian for the sake of it don't be a hipster unless you really really think this is something new and good because also, if you try and make a story where no character is recognizable, people probably won't enjoy it if they had some characters to orient themselves. And I don't think every film needs to be universal either, because it's like, yeah, it doesn't need to be universal. But if you'd like it to have some kind of appeal to more than just a very niche audience, a couple characters to be like, oh, so this is where it's going, or I can relate to them. Because that's yeah. the thing with the cliches well, and the tropes is they... Are relatable to us mm. that's the thing it doesn't have to be character it can be a story beat mm-hmm. that, we, that we know or a little an image that we know or something yeah. like that i was thinking about the top gun movie that came out this year mm-hmm. which was 
in my opinion, anything but original. Like it's a story we've seen a lot of times before, mm-hmm. um, including most of the characters in it, including most of what happens, even some of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. But it was enjoyable. And I think uh, people liked it, audiences liked it, and also critics liked it because mm-hmm. it, was, it was well executed and it wasn't, it, was, it kind of wasn't ashamed of what it was and it wasn't trying mm-hmm. to be something different. It was just trying to do this story, tell it really well. And I think that's, um, obviously there was, there was a hunger for that. Like that's something that isn't really being done that much anymore. Mm-hmm. And again, as I, as I talked about before, people can say, well, those movies have been made so many times that you can just watch the old movies, but people don't do that. Especially yeah. children don't do that. So that's why it's important that they keep, keep being told. Mm-hmm. For sure. So we each kind of came up with or brought a few of our favorite archetypes. Mm-hmm. I'll start with mine, which I have um, hinted at before, which is the witch. Mm-hmm. Favorite, least favorite, who knows? Something okay. that terrifies me. And <laughs> this is actually kind of one of the 12 Jungian archetypes, as in there's the magician, and a lot of people consider the witch just to be the gender-bent version of the magician, basically. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting because the witch that I consider, the witch that I was kind of thinking of for this, is mostly pretty much inherently villainous. Like they are creepy. I'm thinking about the one from Snow White or from the movie The Witch or just like The Witches, you know, the Roald Dahl movie, which I realized I read that book as a, as a kid and I think that helped, helped it scar me. Um, <laughs> did you ever read that? I didn't. Okay. Don't. Okay. Um, no. But I, I'll say like my, my armchair psychoanalysis of The Witch is that it is a personification of the the mysterious, unknown, feminine, chaotic powers as seen and most often in the stories told by men. So not to make like the episode about uh, gender or, or feminism in stories, which maybe we can talk about next week, actually. That'd be yeah. interesting. Um, <laughs> I just don't want to say it here because I haven't uh, really researched or thought about it too much. But it's like in folklore, the witch... And I was reading about this, like the Baba Yaga in Russia. There's one in Japan who's like very prominent, several in Africa. It's like there's always a, um, usually an older woman who can do spells and healing and magic and potions and things like this. But in folklore, she wasn't always inherently villainous, which is something I find interesting. Like she was always powerful and had this kind of uh, supernatural access, I would say, that most people didn't. But she could sometimes use it for good, sometimes use it for bad. I'm thinking hmm. about like in uh, even in the grim fairy tales, the witches are often bad. Like in uh, what is it, Hansel and Gretel? I think oh, that's yeah. a witch, but they're not always bad. Um, sometimes they have the capacity to um, facilitate the happily ever after. Which Glinda, is interesting. the good witch. Well, this is what I was saying. I feel like that folklore which has split in our modern consciousness almost into two different archetypes. There's mm-hmm. the outright villain as in the Wicked Witch of the West. And then there's the outright uh, good, like fairy godmother. Or, yeah, the more caregiver type. Yeah, or the witch from, the good witch from the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, Galinda, mm-hmm. as you said. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's kind of interesting. The fact that maybe it can be a certain, uh, it can be a singular thing in one culture, one conception, but then split and maybe then reunite at some point or, you know, whatever. These things aren't set in stone is what I'm saying, however universal they may be. Mm-hmm. So when I was trying to figure out what my favorite was, I saw this 
these psychologists who decided to try and make each archetype into a family of archetypes. Mm -hmm. So it's just like the normal traditional 12, but then underneath them, they kind of broke it down. Like you're saying, like it's broken down. And so my favorite family was also the magician family. And they suggested that includes the magicians, the alchemists, the engineers, the innovators, and the scientists. And the reason I chose this family is because the mad scientist is probably my favorite archetype. Okay, yeah. Back to the future. I really like, I guess Geppetto isn't like a mad scientist, but just like the sure. the hauled away, super focused on their work. Usually old. Usually old. They're just like obsessed with their work. I really like those characters and stories. I find them inspiring and they're always like outcasts, but it's just like, they just need love. I like them as characters. That's a good show. And in actually. real life, because I was telling you, I met a woman and I was like, oh, she's just so cool. She's traveled everywhere. She's like 73. She's so neat. And it's just like those people who just like are a well of passion for what they're passionate about. It could be travel. It could be whatever. I just find them awesome. Yeah. That's one of the key differences between Alicia and I. <laughs> she tends to like older people. I tend to run away from them in terror. Yeah, I guess you think they're all witches. <laughs> the next, or warlocks. The next archetype <laughs> I wanted to talk about was that of Iago. The villain from Othello. As I say, mm -hmm. I didn't like re research exactly the categories because mm -hmm. it just seemed like there were so many different conceptions of them. Conceptions that you that you could kind of subscribe to. So I was like, I'll make my own. So Iago, yeah. When I read Othello as a teenager, I was really struck by the villain. Not not just because wow, that's a really great villain, which he is from the play. Obviously, he's one of the best ever. But because in reading it, I recognized him in so many other stories that I've read, seen watched, listened to um, in all the years prior to that. Mm -hmm. like, and sometimes it's really funny when you can see the fingerprints of one character or an archetype, um, when that kind of clicks in your mind, you're like, oh, mm -hmm. he's here, he's here, he's here. Because like House of Cards, which was a Netflix series, I started watching it before I read Othello. And then when I kind of returned to that show, I was like, wow, this guy's Iago. Yeah. Like, he's even giving soliloquies <laughs> to, the, to the audience and being kind of fourth wall breaking. The reason I like this villain is because I feel like he's, He's usually the smartest character in the story, uh, mm -hmm. obviously the most devious and he's kind of Machiavellian and very, very false, mm -hmm. but he's, he's kind of eminently watchable. Um, like you can't take your eyes off them. You don't exactly root for them mm -hmm. um, because they're so devious, but usually they are like the person who drives the plot, mm -hmm. his villains often are. Um, and they have also a kind of, self-awareness which i find really fascinating like the way that he addresses the audience is interesting the way that frank does in house of cards is really interesting and they have this it's almost an awareness of themselves like they know themselves as a character they know what they're doing is bad like like almost like a good type of self-awareness that you would encourage in people mm -hmm. you know consider your motives and think about why you're doing what you're doing and the villain's done that and he's decided to do it anyway yeah which is what I find interesting, but also they have a kind of self-awareness almost of themselves as a character in a play, Yeah, which is always, always really fascinating. That kind of, it's not quite explicitly breaking the fourth wall, but it's hinting at it. It's hinting mm -hmm. at, I know I'm not real. Um, yeah. And kind of a, a modern analog or a modern like descendant of this, I, I thought of was in Looney Tunes. One of my favorite shorts is, I think it's called Duck Amuck the one with Daffy Duck where he's like fighting with the animator. Okay. And then I thought about it. I was like, Daffy does have some Iago to him because mm -hmm. he's often not the most noble of the Looney Tunes character. And he's very driven by greed and he's quite self-serving and he's, 
he can be nefarious in a watchable way. Yeah. And I feel like he often, he, he sometimes has these, these asides to the audience where he'd be like, oh, I'll go and do this or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, that's a really great short. If people want to watch that, Duck and Muck. Very, very famous. And I don't know, I always find it hilarious. It is very funny. It's very modern. Yeah. Despite it being a bit older. <laughs> yeah. Kind of funny. The thing with the Iago type is that he also, same as the witches, has potential for good. Because it's like he could use his brains and his self-awareness to do great things, but yeah, yeah. no, he chooses violence. Mm. Yeah, there are some types, I think like in the Marvel movies, Loki, he's a little bit yeah. Iago-esque, but he, doesn't he also have, sometimes he's good, like he has shades mm-hmm. of like, we're going to help the villain this time, and, but you mm-hmm. never quite know, there's this inherent duplicity to his mm-hmm. character that audiences they love that because they never really know what to predict from him and the last one i wanted to mention just because i mentioned two villains so i wanted to balance it out slightly is like the chosen one archetype because i remember when i first started writing fantasy when i was 10 11 12 and i was reading online about things to avoid or things to do which is probably not a good thing for a young Mm -hmm. writer to do at all um everything was like you, you should avoid avoid these cliches don't have um a villain who's just evil don't have a hero who's just good and is just um, kind of ordained and this is his destiny to fight the villain and save the land because that's been done a thousand times. But I really, really like this this archetype. I, I understand the criticisms. I know why people don't because um, it's kind of, I mean, usually there's like a noble lineage or like a mysterious birth mm-hmm. and then maybe it'll be just a humble farm boy, but he learns that actually he's a descendant to a great line of kings. Mm-hmm. And that's why he is going to be the one who saves the world. And people don't like that because it doesn't seem like it's particularly uh, merit- a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. And people like it when, you know, it's just like a nobody. And yeah. they're going to do things good through their own actions, mm-hmm. through their own choices. But I don't think that the two things are mutually exclusive. Like I think Harry Potter is a good example where there was a literal prophecy that this boy is going to be the one who pro- probably brings down Voldemort, but also through the story you see so many times when he could turn away and you know deeply considers it, but there are choices to be made still. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what it does, it, I actually find it quite an empowering um, character because it gives you the sense of innate goodness. It's like mm-hmm. you have to make choices, but also it was foretold that you will do good in the world I, I, I think it's very it's like a it's a life affirming it's a positive story that i always i always enjoy because also the villains in stories always seem so overwhelming mm-hmm. and it's like if you have something so evil as sauron or as voldemort you want someone also equally good to to be able to to fight that yeah another way that it's life affirming is i feel like if you believe in dense destiny or fate or anything like that or okay, well, maybe everything's just already chosen. Why would I even bother? Yeah. Like these characters show you, even though there's literal proof that this is how they're going to succeed or literal like armies behind them, they still have to make choices. And it allows you to be like, okay, even if everything's predestined or whatever your belief may Mm be, it's like you still have to make choices and you could still kind of end up wherever. It just empowers you. With regards to prophecy and story, I just finished reading... The death of King Arthur, and obviously it was spoiled to me by the title of the of the book. But <laughs> the characters aren't aware that King Arthur's about to die in, okay. in the battle at the end of it. But it was really funny because he's basically going up um, in this battle, and he's like mounting the charge, 
and everyone around is like, no, don't do it. You, you, unless you have Lancelot, you won't be able to win this. You're going to die. He's like, no, it'll be fine. I can do it. And as he goes, he gets this general kind of unease, but he's King Arthur. He's very courageous and he's won many battles. So he feels ultimately confident. And then when he arrives at the field where they're going to fight, there's this stone, which is written. It's like, this is the place where the land is going to be orphaned, meaning this is the place where its king will die. Mm -hmm. And he's like, who wrote this? And someone's like, Merlin. And he's like, oh. <laughs> and he's like, uh, maybe I shouldn't have, have fought. But by that point, he's in too deep. So I thought that was really funny. I see. That is comedic. Speaking of comedic, actually, this is not comedic at all. Rather tragic. Um, the organism of the week for this week. Panda. Yeah. Specifically, the World Wildlife Foundation <laughs> panda for some reason. I guess you really like the logo. Yeah, I do like the logo. What do you mean for some reason? It's very topical for the next question, no? It is very topical. Which is about storytelling and advertising, storytelling yes. and marketing. So it's kind of my introduction. It is the WWF logo, significantly easier to draw than the real panda. Than a real panda. Yeah. I still wouldn't say I, I nailed it, but it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I really thought about tracing it. But mm, I didn't, so tempted. I feel good about it. Good. Um, this has been the logo for the World Wildlife Foundation since it was founded in 1961. Okay. And Had many iterations, simplified a little bit over the years. Yeah. Um, so the giant panda is actually no longer considered endangered. Woohoo. Woohoo. It's only <laughs> vulnerable now. Amazing. So it's been like leveled up a little bit. We can actually do good in the world. Yeah. I couldn't find uh, like very recent stats, but as of 2015, said there's over 1,800 in the wild. Look at that. So it's like, it's pretty good. Pandas are back. The bamboo is being eaten. Yeah. They are mainly found in temperate forests in the mountains of China. As you mentioned, they eat a lot of bamboo every day. Do you want to guess how much every day? They eat 10 times their body weight. Probably so, not. No, they don't. That's, That's annoying because you overshot it. But they eat 26 to 84 pounds of bamboo every day. What? And I think their weights, like they can be 200 or 300 depending on their sex. So not quite 10 times, but still it's a lot of bamboo. It's a lot of bamboo. Um, they have the weird wrist bones, which is one of the first like animal facts I learned. I don't know this animal fact. They, they have a weird wrist bone that kind of acts as an opposable thumb. So it's like a little nub hmm. they can use for... For bamboo. For grasping things. Yeah, grasping things. The funny thing about pandas, they're good climbers. Yeah. Is that I feel like I always picture them being small. Right. Like liter like teddy bear size. And yeah. so I feel like if I ever saw one in the wild, I'd be just floored. Well, the name is a giant panda. I know, but it's like, oh, the giant ant. You know, it's still only going to be <laughs> like an inch long. I was kind of wondering, I was like, so are there small pandas? Good question. Like, why is it called a giant panda? It's just, there's pretty much just the one panda bear. But are red pandas small? There are tiny red pandas. Tiny little. Ooh. And they look almost like raccoon bears. Yeah. Like tanukis or something. Mm -hmm. They look, they don't really look like, they look more like marsupials or something. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, <laughs> habitat loss, bamboo. Uh, adds one fact, which is that the Sichuan giant panda sanctuaries, which is a place in China, where something like 20 or 30% of the wild pandas live, is actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Cool. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts about this logo or pandas in general or environmental mascots like this? Yeah, I think environmental mascots are good. There's always the crisis of the, oh, only the megafauna is personable enough to be used. 
why don't we love the ants? And it's like, we know why we don't love the ants because these guys are cute and they're more like humans. But I think <laughs> if it helps save the pandas to use it as the logo and then consequentially it has saved probably a lot of other species, I say go for it. Yeah. In my business classes, I remember always getting very angry when it would come time to talk about logos and marketing because a lot of my classes would always focus on the success of environmental organizations and other non-for-profits, so not just environmental ones. And they always would use this one as an example. They'd be like, look at how sleek the logo is. And I'm like, okay, I don't know. It feels almost like sacrilegious to like dissect the efforts of a not-for-profit. I don't yeah. know why, but it upsets me. Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about that next, which is like genuinely creative people using their talents for... Evil. Not for evil, but maybe for, for greed mm-hmm. or just for monetary gain, which... I understand it's probably always happened, but mm-hmm. it feels like it's the only way to be encouraged and to be to find success creatively these mm-hmm. days, which is rather depressing. But also about the panda, what's your favorite panda movie? Kung Fu Panda? Kung Fu Panda, of course. I knew you were going to say that because you don't know many others. Oh, I. Seeing Red or Turning Red. Oh, yeah, Turning Red. That doesn't count. Um, <laughs> Kung Fu Panda 4 is being made. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Neither did I. I thought Jack it was wrapped Black up. Still... He's coming back, yeah. Good. Good for him. Big, big fans of his for some reason. Or I am anyway. I always think I'm not going to like him. Then I watch the movie. I like him. Yeah. <laughs> Can't help it. He has just a, a very charming demeanor. Actually, I wanted to talk next week about performances in the solo Ooh, scene. Because I've been thinking uh, recently about how actors through history have always occupied a very special place in society. Yeah. Not always good. Um, but always a very distinct place, should I say. And today it's obviously quite the pedestal that we put them on. And we think of it as, like, oh, today, why do we worship these actors or whatever? But as I said, they've always been set apart. So I think uh, next week we can talk about the role of performers and performances in the solo scene and just how we've talked a lot about archetypes, stories, especially universal stories through the semester, how we actually play them out in everyday life also, maybe next week. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent question. You're on the ball today, Aaron. Thank you. About to fall off it. And the next question, <laughs> which is about archetypes and storytelling and advertising, mm-hmm. which is typically not a nice thing in my eyes. No. And the only words I think we said about advertising in the solo scene is there will be much less of it because we don't like being bombarded. So where'd you go with this question? Okay. This is the second week in a row where the second question just kind of throws me off my rocker, I would say. Yeah, it makes me a little bit sad as well. Um, so since the beginning of psychology studies, you think, oh, we've discovered this new field of science that's going to help people mm. become more mentally stable, society be able to resolve their problems better. Awesome. But literally from the conception of this field of study because it's like decently young it's been co-opted to be used to exploit people's minds mainly for economic gain yeah and so i just saw that when i was researching for the first question honestly it just upset me (laughs) and then i started reading a bit more about it and i realized perhaps we can try and equip the listeners to recognize when they're being duped 
Yeah. So the first way to recognize if you're being duped is do you recognize one of the 12 archetypes in this story or do you recognize this story? Because often it'll be a sob story, a sob story, some would say, but then it ends up just trying to sell you a barbecue and you think, oh, that's silly, like whatever. But they always, like, they do it for a reason because it does in fact have an impact on us because we're susceptible to them. And our brains have trouble distinguishing real life experiences from stories that have been told to us. So you see the billboard with a delicious meal on it and a bunch of friends around the table and you're like, whatever. But then you're like, oh, where do I go to eat? Oh, I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> oh, I feel kind of lonely. I'll go there. Like it just, it has an impact on us no matter how ironclad you think you are. Yeah. Unless you recognize the archetype. I find that's a good way to dismantle it. I think you mentioned immediately the core of this, which is, it's, it's funny because they drive at it even more cynically than do most most movies these days, which is saying something, which is just a single emotion almost always. It'll be mm. guilt or... Um, adventure. Adventure or self-worth or family mm-hmm. or, you know, togetherness, whatever it may be. It's like, like if I say adventure, what's a brand that you think targets that? Jeep. Jeep, yeah. Like I see the, the ads on YouTube all the time or Arcteryx or Patagonia where they're mm. like advertising their tents and you want to be one of those people. Man, I want to be out on a mountain and stuff. Yeah. Or if I say like the urge to self-improve, like what brand might target that? I think of Gymshark. Yeah, like gym brand, the like gym athletic brands. brands, like Nike, these kind of things. And what I find really funny is that for the bigger brands anyway, they are stories told to you um, but try to... One, try to kind of make you buy your place in the story. Mm-hmm. So Nike will um, sell a pair of football boots and or cleats. In their commercial, they'll have like Ronaldo doing his things, uh, Neymar doing his things, like all these genuine world-class athletes. And at the end, they'll be like handing the boots to you in front of the camera and be like, mm-hmm. what will you do or something? So there's, yeah. there's that sense of it. But also it's the idea that they are playing out stories using real people, which is, mm. which is like, it's appealing to us on two different levels. So Apple does it when they talk about creatives. Like, yeah, like Billie Eilish yeah. uses our laptop. Exactly. They don't just use a cartoon like, this is what could be happening. They say, this is what Billie Eilish does, or this is mm-hmm. what Steve Jobs did, of course. Like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, what do you think about it? It's like this, this Venn diagram. It's like this intersection. We tell stories. And we're also going to use familiar, like real life faces. And these two things, like people can't say no to that. Like I find it. I, I find it hard to say no. Is there, what kind of ads do you fall for? I fall for, I mean, or basically, I'll tell a little story. So four years ago, I was like, okay, I want to start a fashion brand someday. So I should start learning about fashion. Or I want to start in that industry. And so I started looking into sustainable fashion, slow fashion, all of that. Like, oh, Awesome. Every YouTuber that I'm watching is being sponsored by certain brands. They're like, oh, I got this from, I'll drop names, got this from Aritzia, got this from Everlane. And I'm like, oh, these are the people that I'm familiar with. This is Bethany. This Real is whoever. Yeah. Um, and then this brand, and then they're telling a story. This is sustainable. This can help improve the lifespan of your wardrobe. It's well-made. It's well-crafted. And then you see the videos of them actually crafting it or whatever it may be. And then you buy it. And then... You don't even think to look into the actual ethics or the actual climate impact of these brands. And then someday 
you happen upon the impact and you're upset because it's all been a lie. So in other words, you, you trust the companies at their word, which is yeah. what you shouldn't do. And it, that's what I find sad because artists, like if someone's telling a genuine story from the heart, um, not of their, of their life, but they're, they're, they're writing fiction, then you should take them at their word because mm -hmm. it's the most earnest thing in the world. Yeah. Uh, companies, when they do it, they, they corrupt this pure, pure dynamic of storyteller and person sitting around the campfire listening, mm -hmm. which is, which we've had ingrained in us from, from so young, since we were a child in like a library in school and the teacher was sitting in the front and we were all like cross-legged on the floor, hearing what she had to say about the tortoise and the hare. Mm -hmm. um, we, we still kind of have that muscle memory and we adopt the same role when we're sitting in front of a TV and the ad for Grammarly comes on mm -hmm. in front of in front of our YouTube video and we say, man, I, I like to write. I need Grammarly yeah. because it tells me I need Grammarly, but really you don't. It's genuinely challenging sometimes to also unlearn the things that you have embodied. Like I suspect someday I'll still probably buy another Apple product despite thinking to myself, this might be slightly overpriced, <laughs> but I do like the experience and like, oh, and it's easy. Like it's just the whole narrative of all these products and it's challenging to disentangle because it's not always just the environmental impact. It might just be with like branding on a lot of cosmetics and food. It's like these are literally the same ingredients sourced from the same places, but one has the brand and one doesn't. Yeah. And you'll always buy the brand because you trust it. Because Food's also when you're growing up, you're told to trust the brand names. Basically, it's like, oh, if you're torn between the no name and the craft version, get the craft version. It'll taste better. It'll be better for you. But there's just like no actual reasoning behind that besides that perhaps 60 years ago that was the case. They used better quality ingredients. Yeah. But now... Not so much. With regards to archetypes also, and I think foods actually, I hadn't thought of that. That's a really, they're really prominent in that industry and in marketing. Something I noticed recently was that the, the almond milks, um, you know, those like alternative milks made out of almond had adopted the same practice as the cow milk in terms yeah. of their adverts, which was showing a white family on a farm about how kind of uh, hardworking they are and mm -hmm. it's all in the family. And at the end, they've got the little girl drinking a full cup of milk at the at the camera and it's an all-american thing so this time we're not using cows we're using almonds which is really funny how they're <laughs> playing on that that previous like uh muscle memory that we have and trying mm -hmm. to trigger that same sense of home i suppose yeah. but also i'm thinking about how restaurants fast food chains will try and put as the face of their thing like like what you were talking about with the geppetto archetype like a, a kindly old man yeah an artisan yeah, an artisan making the pizzas away. or yeah. like an old southern guy making the chicken or mm -hmm. like um, on maybe on a cupcake brand, it'll be an old woman who'll be called like Mrs. Thatcher's Cupcakes. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah. she doesn't make these anymore. These, If she ever did, mm -hmm. she might have just been an invention. These are in the factory. True. My final gripe is just to express how much I hate how ignorant we are of the fact that Brands, I was griping to you about this the other day. Brands are often all under like a family. So there's like the General Mills family, but mm. we just don't know that because they're so good at writing stories. Yeah, exactly. So you think, oh, cornflakes was invented by this one guy and it was all this, oh, there's this whole thing. And then there's what else? What's another product? They also sell soup, Campbell soup. And it's like, oh, this was probably Campbell. Campbell. And then they passed down, they really got it off the ground. And like we genuinely Family just business. think that. That's why they keep those names. Yeah. For food, they keep those names. Like for for entertainment, it's ne like Netflix is never even cool. Like 
Uncle Joe's movies or whatever yeah. because they don't need to. But for mm-hmm. food that people are maybe a little bit more suspicious about what they put in their body, so they're like, oh, mm-hmm. I trust Uncle Joe a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. It's all just literally made in the same Yeah, place. it's like um, <laughs> people who think that James Patterson writes all those books himself. Yeah. He doesn't. Those are, when, those are ghostwritten. <laughs> I'm just, just calling everyone out. Or when you go to a restaurant and you're like, oh, this tastes so good. But it's just, sometimes it's literally just the bread that you could buy at the store. Yeah. Because I always find that funny when you like then see them like taking it out of the bag or whatever. And it's like, that's just, it's just. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a slightly different thing. But we're talking about, we're talking about imagery. We're talking about yeah, archetypes. We're talking about characters. Okay. Um, Something else I was thinking about is the fact that since companies are so bu- so big now, they don't even have to just reflect our own um, pre-existing notions of Campbell or mm. um, Quaker or Quaker or anything like that or the dairy farm. They can actually push um, images onto us like, mm-hmm. and then sell it back to us. They can push agendas of their own. And I was kind of contrasting, like shape us rather, um, mm-hmm. rather than just us shaping them, which is maybe what it was in the past. Because I was contrasting this a little bit with, with governments and political parties, which pretty much just do pander to people. Like they just, um, oh, our demographic wants this, so we'll show them this in our ads. Like um, this is what our vision of Canada will look like. So they'll show ads that they know the demographic wants it to look like. like mm-hmm. you know, they'll tell a story like that, which is whatever. Because they don't have um, a product basically to push. All they have is allegiance like that's all you know a vote that's pretty much they just want something they're Mm -hmm. not really giving anything like it sounds kind of Mm -hmm. silly but that's what it is whereas companies they do have a product along with the story um governments don't have a product along with the story so like nike can have a a pair of shoes which is designed really interestingly and it looks nice and it's going to make you run faster on those things and like you genuinely believe it and then they can tell a story that maybe you don't already agree with um, but because it's attached to the shoes, you start to fit yourself to that story is what mm. I'm saying, kind of. Yeah, I see what you mean. Like, like, with, um, like with Apple and the MacBook, it's like the product is appealing in itself, mm. but then when they package it with a story which is like black and white uh, photos of activists and stuff, mm. you start to think, I'm an activist. Even I, though you're, I'm into activism, even though you're, you haven't been and you're not. I genuinely wonder how much people like how the industry of creators activists artists digital artists specifically even working online how many people wouldn't have done that if apple hadn't yeah marketed the way they I'd did made it seem so, so appealing cool. in life. yeah because i feel like there'd be way fewer influencers and mm. way fewer like digital artists and it's not i'm not like oh there should be way fewer but it's just like i wonder how much their marketing impacted people's entire life paths a question for next week <laughs> <laughs> maybe not but it's a good thing to to dwell on it's a for, thesis. <laughs> for the week so in the solo scene um are there any rules about this like can we come up with some kind of conclusion about how this will be different in the solo scene because we talked about how kind of bad it is today mm-hmm. and the only like recent advertising laws that you hear of that make the news are like um banning unrealistic depictions of of like body standards or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like we're not going to let you Photoshop models anymore. Yeah. Which is, I mean, whatever. I'm not making a value judgment on that. But what I'm saying is there is a precedent for law intervening in advertisement yeah. for the better of Can't advertise of cigarettes to kids. Yep. 
can't do that anymore. I'm you have bad. to put like the, the bad thing on cigarettes. Yeah. So like there is a. It's always been a regulated industry. Yeah, regulation. Um, I think in the solar scene there should just be very strict regulations around it, because I also think that we should have a degrown economy and government. Mm. So it's like if you have a business, it's great. I think it can grow a decent amount, but it's just like it shouldn't be done through exploiting people, and it all should just be done kind of naturally, like through word of mouth. Yeah. Because we've seen even in Montreal, there's businesses that grow just around here. They have like five places and they do great. They don't really, you don't need to dominate the world. I don't know. Yeah. I just think degrowth is kind of the answer to that question. I think that um, not even touching on what should or shouldn't be shown, but how much of it should or shouldn't be shown. Like the Mm -hmm. rules on quantity would be interesting. How much it invades real life space is how big a billboard can be how many billboards mm-hmm. are allowed on you know per square mile or something like that and also um on the internet i just think ads should i be, think off the internet, yeah, off the internet i think like much. before movies is fine when there's like trailers those are cool yeah i think tv there just shouldn't be ads well um, I, think, I just think it's a it's a thing to think about yeah. for people sure so thanks for joining us it's now soul scene after dark <laughs> um we'll see you all Next week. Bye.